Today's teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not destroy up yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp of the body is your eyes are healthy. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can survive two monsters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despite the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful morning, God. I thank you for everybody who's here today, Lord. I thank you for another week, God. I just pray over Pastor Andrew, Lord, as he teaches, just fill him with the confidence and the knowledge he needs to teach everyone, God. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to fill this room. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All righty. Today is our final day in our Ordinary Radicals series. And so if you've made it all the way through the series, kudos to you. Great job. Um, <clears throat> my prayer in this series has been rather simple, but it's sincere, and it's been this. God, awaken our church's imagination for all that is possible in you. And it seems as though God has been faithful in answering this prayer. As there have been stories of God awakening individuals in the areas of prayer and mission and formation. And so we as a church are doubling down our efforts, attention, and resources to become a house of prayer, mission, and formation. It was in the original outline of this sermon series that the sermon series was supposed to end last week. But I felt, us, I felt the Spirit invite us into one more call. And here is the invitation, I believe, is from the Spirit. It is an invitation into generosity, that our community would truly become a house of generosity. Now, if I could be totally honest, this message is not one that I get super stoked about preaching. You know, I'm not like looking at the preaching calendar like, I can't wait to talk about generosity <laughs> or giving. But nonetheless, it is required of me as your pastor Frankly, talking about giving, generosity, and money understandably makes people uncomfortable. The second I said the last call is for us to become a community of generosity, it got eerily quiet in the room. You could kind of just feel the tension start, uh-oh, here comes the money talk. And I get it. I really do. But since we planted this church, I've preached 247 sermons so for the OGs who have been here since the living room days, they've heard at least 247 hours of me talking. That's enough for a lifetime, I'm sure. But in those 247 sermons, I've preached exactly two messages on money and or giving in our possessions. And so that means 0.8% of the messages I've preached to our community are about our finances and how we steward them. Now, some of you might be like, I chose the right church, right? They're talking about this, the bare minimum as possible. But for me, that stings with some conviction because Jesus was deeply concerned about the distortion of money and the temptation that comes with it. But I realize that as we have this conversation, 
I'm not preaching in a vacuum, but I'm preaching to a context filled with stories of corruption and scandal. I realize that when somebody who's like me gets the nice microphone, comes up here and starts to talk, everyone begins to get weary. You've heard stories in your mind of multi-million dollar properties and private jets and expensive shoes and really overpriced sneakers. And there is no shortage of stories of embezzlement and greed and misuse of church finances. And so I am aware that these things flood your mind. And I want to acknowledge the skeptical in the room. However, I also want to acknowledge that for some of you, the story you believe is that all churches are out to get your money. And maybe you were like starting to like Zion. You're like, you know what, this place is great. They got nice coffee. You know, the people are cool, whatever. And then it's like, and here it is. The last, it fell, right? Here it is. Here's where it comes down to this. I hear you. And so if that's a concern you have, I just want to put you at ease. We don't want your money. That's not our goal here. That's not our thing here at all. Our goal is to teach you, to train you, to companion with you as you companion with Jesus. And Jesus has a lot to say about finances. So there are uh, those also um, in the room who feel that m- having a conversation about money is a part of the cultural taboo and that you're not supposed to have these kind of conversations, and I acknowledge those people as well. I also realize that for some people in the room, they acknowledge that um, as, a, as a church last December, which I'm coming up on a year, I was able to come on staff here to better love and serve my family and this community, and this might worry some people because like, oh, here comes the conversation. He's kind of worried about his gig or whatever. I get it. I do. I'm a skeptic as well, so I've had some of those same thoughts. But before we jump too far into the message, I just want to address some of those concerns briefly, if I may. First, as a church, we're committed to financial transparency and integrity. From the very start, every single year, we published uh, financial docs on our website that you can see how every single dollar is used, how every single dollar has been allotted over since, the t- since the time our church was born. And so you can see what giving's been, what spending's been, all of that. A lot of churches don't do that. That's our commitment here that we're willing to do that. And so at the end of this year, you're going to know how much money I make. (gasps) Shocker. But I don't care, right? It's like that's our job as a community is to be honest, open, and transparent about our finances. You need to know as faithful stewards of God's resources how your resources are being used. That's a commitment that we hold here. And that's a commitment we're going to continue to hold here. Even long after if I ever leave, I'm gone. That's going to be the standard we hold here. Secondarily, we're a church committed to simplicity. Don't believe me? Look around right? There's not a lot of glitz and glam, and that's with intentionality. It's our desire as followers of Jesus to live simply that we may do more, that we may invest more into God's people, into his kingdom, into those in need. And so as you look around, you know, I tell our our building guy, Tim, this who's incredible. I said, we need to be ready to pack up a move in 30 days. Like, that's our whole mission always is like, keep it bare minimum essentials as for as long as we need. And we believe that's a kingdom ethic. Next, If you think that all we want from you is money, again, we don't want your money. This is a no-pressure environment. There's not going to be, like, people who just come out of the shadows with baskets ready to take your offering today or something of that nature, right? We believe that giving is between you and Jesus alone. And how you steward those finances is best done in secret. And so there's no special offering plate going to get passed around. No guy in a suit's going to come and elbow you, right, and hand the little basket your way. That's between you and Jesus entirely. This is a no-pressure environment. Seriously. If at the end of this talk, you pray, and the Spirit's like, don't ever give them a dime, obey that. Like, genuinely, if that is what you feel the Spirit speaking to you, if that's what you're discerning, that's what communities, 
obey that. That's genuinely our heart. This is a no-pressure environment. And so don't think that, like, at the end of this talk is like, all right, here come the guys <laughs> from the back, nothing like that, so you could breathe. Next, my whole life, God has provided for me and my family. So at any moment, if this church becomes um, financially untenable for me to be on staff, I will happily move on to something else, right? Not happily. I will, I will, I will trust God in moving on to something else. Because he's faithfully provided for my family that whole way through. And so if you're wondering, oh, this is about him getting a written, none of that. No. If it ever comes to that point, I know Jesus will take care of me and my family. So this is not at all a concern in my heart because he's been faithful to do so thus far. He's not going to stop now. And lastly, if it's your first time here, I'm really sorry. Thank you for showing up today. You get this talk. It's just the luck of the draw for you. But we're really glad you're here. Next week, hopefully, we'll be better. But... Um, I want to work through this teaching of Jesus that we just read, but instead of going, it to- going through it top down, I want to kind of go through it bottom up, and I think it helps bring some different insights into the text. So would you join me in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24? Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to, the other, uh, devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Many of us think about our lives as compartmentalized, right? You got, like, your God and spirituality box over here, and then you got, like, the rest of life. You know what I'm saying? You got, like, Sunday service and community groups and when you read your Bible and when you pray, and then you have, like, laundry and dishes and hanging out with friends and all that other stuff, right? We got our boxes for our lives. And we have this concept of a spiritual life, right? So I have my life, and then I have my spiritual life, which is the way of me articulating this different aspect of my life in which I live, That's fine, but the only problem with that is that Jesus and the authors of scriptures do not share that same paradigm. Like, if you were to come to Jesus and be like, so Jesus, how's your spiritual life? What? Right? Like, he would be baffled. Like, what are you talking about? Because for a a, a Jewish person, and namely Jesus and the authors of scriptures, all of life is spiritual. All of their life is integrated. There's no part of themselves. There's no section of their week that's separate. You see, we think in terms of sacred and secular. That is not at all what the biblical authors had in mind. All of life was spiritual. All of life was sacred. So how they stewarded and lived in those moments really mattered. And so that's the paradigm that Jesus has as he comes to teach, as he comes to share this. And so if all of our life is integrated and all of our lives are sacred because all of our life matters to God, then guess what? This includes our resources and how we use them. Jesus was concerned deeply with our connections to wealth and our possessions. What we do with our resources and our apprenticeship to Jesus, hear this, are interwoven. This is why Jesus talks about money in 17 of his 39 parables. The biblical scholar estimate is that 25% of Jesus' teaching is directly or indirectly dealing with money. If we are going to take Jesus seriously at all, We cannot avoid a conversation around our resources. But this begs the question, why is this so important to Jesus? Like, why does Jesus care about what I do with my things? Well, because Jesus wants us to understand the reality of mammon. Now, in some of your translations here in verse 24, the word money is translated mammon. Now, this is the way historically the church is used to talk about um, this, this reality, this pool, this tug of something called mammon. Mammon is money personified as a power that lays claim on humanity. 
mammon is money personified as a power that lays claim on humanity. To put it another way, mammon is when we as humans fall underneath the delusion of self-sufficiency. And this is the money, this is the lie that money tells. That as long as we have it, we don't need anything else. Now, there's been a lot of bad teaching around money and a lot of misquoting of scripture around money in that people think that the scriptures say like the love of money is the, uh, the, oh, the money is the root of all evil, but it's actually the love of money that is the root of all evil. Bad PR there on the Christian part, but that's how people think. Now, is money evil? No, not at all. Jesus' whole ministry was funded with finances from people. Jesus stewarded all that for the kingdom. Money is not inherently evil, no. It's simply a tool. What matters is how we use it and our posture towards it. When money becomes mammon is when money becomes our master. Notice Jesus' words here. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Douglas Jones says this, for Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among many equals. He singled it out as the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality, of knowledge, or the earth in such starch opposition, some start, stark opposition to God. Jesus never said, you can't serve sexuality and God or knowledge and God, though those were idols too. Jesus said that mammon, our resources, is his direct competition. It is what grasps at our hearts. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew 19. He says this, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because many who have accumulated wealth, it has a hold on their hearts. It's just true. And think of that absurd picture, a camel through the eye of a needle. That's the kind of strength this has over our hearts. And so if we are not careful, we can fall under the delusion of riches. Jesus is clear. Either he is Lord or something else is. And for a lot of people, it's money. Often, we are unaware of its influence and its hold over us. But consider Jesus' words about what keeps people from receiving his teaching about the kingdom of God. Mark 4. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, notice this next line, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and do what? Choke the word. Make it in unfruitful. Jesus says what keeps people from receiving his word, his teaching, is the deception that money brings, is the delusion that money brings, is the deceitfulness of wealth. When not put in proper order, our love of money not only blinds us, but it creates a false sense of security and strangles the good news that Jesus has come to set us free and keeps us enslaved to our desires. First, it blinds us. There's a scene in the life of Ezekiel where God speaks to him about a king, uh, God speaks to Ezekiel about a king who rules over a place called Tyre. Hearing God's word, to, hear God's word to this king, Ezekiel 28 says this, In the pride of your heart you say, I am God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a mere mortal and not a God. 
though you think you are as wise as a god, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Notice the language there. I am a God. I sit on the throne. I don't think any of you are telling yourself this in the morning as you're getting ready. You're not brushing your teeth. I am a God. I sit on a throne, right? If you do, let's talk after service. But this is often the posture of our hearts because we think through our influence, our wealth, what we've amassed for ourselves, it's entirely up to us. Now, whenever God blesses somebody, hear this, it always comes with a warning. When God blesses the children of Israel as they're leaving exile, leaving Egypt, he warns them. And he makes it very clear to them. He says, do not mistake what I'm giving you. Like, don't, don't exchange the gift for the giver. He says, your, your heart will quickly go cold. All throughout the book of Deuteronomy, he's constantly repeating, remember, 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 because it's our hearts, our hearts are prone to forget. And so his warning to them is, hey, this is a gift, and I want to give it to you. Here's like an instruction manual. Here's what this could mean. And I could choose not to give this to you, but because my heart is to bless, I'm going to give it to you anyways. But hear this. Hear this word. Caution. Remember the Lord. Remember me. And so when we receive gifts from the Father, it is our nature to exchange the giver for the gift. It looks like wanting the things God can give us without wanting him. What happens is that pride creeps in when we fail to recognize God as the source of all blessing. And we think things in our mind like this, it's all me. All that I have done is for my hard work. And look, there's a lot to be said about working hard and doing the right things. I'm not saying any of those things. But what I am saying is do not forget for a moment who spoke the very world you're navigating into existence and who gave you the gifts and abilities you have and who's woven into the fibers of your being the ability to work and to create. Remember the Lord. Secondarily, it's this. Money creates a false sense of security. Money gives us a sense of control and power. John Tyson says this. Some use money as an umbrella of control. Money creates space, comfort, and distance between the challenges and annoyances of life. It creates an illusory blanket of security around our place and position in the world. We don't realize how comfortable we get and how comfortable we make our lives until we see people in different situations. You know, maybe this weekend it was like, the Wi-Fi is not working. And it's like, really? <laughs> you know, it's like, this is the great struggle of the modern world. The Wi-Fi is slow and it's lagging. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, this is like, we're, and that's what we're complaining about. This Wi-Fi stinks, dude. Like, you know, upgrade a little or something like that, right? That was the contention or something. It's like, oh, I don't like yams or whatever it is, right? And it's like these are the things that have like plagued our heart. There's no posture of gratitude or thankfulness or responsibility or joy. It's like it's too cold in here or whatever it is, you know, and that just shows kind of the disposition of our heart and that money makes us incredibly comfortable. It provides a comfortable life for us. I mean, most people in this room have a pantry full of fridge. Oh, I'm sorry, pantry full of fridge. A pantry full of food or a fridge full of food. A pantry full of fridge. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, 
and will even say, I don't feel like cooking anything, and will DoorDash something to their house. And, dude, no disrespect on DoorDash. Do what you got to do. But all that I'm saying here is, like, the prayer for, praly- for daily bread falls on deaf ears for us because we don't know that kind of dependence, that kind of, uh, that kind of trusting in God for our very next meal because we got weeks and weeks and weeks in our freezers and in our pantries. Money gives us a sense of control and power. And it's important for us to steward that power well and to not allow it to have an influence over us, a negative influence. We need to put all of our trust in who God is and not what's entirely in our bank accounts. Next, money keeps us in our grasps, in its grasps. There's a famous story of John Rockefeller, historically one of the wealthiest people to ever live. And when a reporter asked him, how much money is enough money? Do you know what his response was? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And isn't that the, the lie that money tells? I want you to think about, for those of you in the workforce, that time that you got that pay raise, you know, when you made it to that next tier, and you thought, this is it, baby. We've done it, right? I imagine that the first job you ever had. You know what it was like to hold that first check, you know? It was like $87. You're like, that's it. We've made it, y'all. We did it, you know? I don't need nobody's help. I got this on my own. And then you pay some bills, and you got $6.27 left. You can't even afford your Starbucks. You're like, well. <laughs> but... Do you remember the joy and the gratitude you had for being at that tier? And then think about when you got that first bonus, that first, like, oh, it's like, dude, we're kings and queens now, you know. We're in takeout all week long, right, whatever it was. And now it's like you get paid, and there's just no sense of gratitude. It's like, oh, this is it. I thought the bonus was going to be bigger this year, or whatever it is. And there's a lot to be said about, like, good business practice and all this other stuff. But what I am saying is this. Our posture in the matter is what matters the most. Not coming with this gratitude, not coming with gratitude or thanksgiving in us. And it's always just beyond us, right? The next tier is just a little bit further. It's just a little bit nicer of a house or a little bit nicer of a car or the new iPhone or whatever the little thing just beyond your eyes is. It's always just a little bit more. It's never where you're at. It's never what's already happening in your world. Much of our framework around our relationship to money and possessions is rooted in an unhealthy view of how the world works. Which leads me to Jesus' next line. He says this, verse 22, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, to the modern ears, it seems like Jesus is rambling a bit, if we're honest, right? It's like he's having this conversation about money, and then he starts talking about your eyes being healthy and unhealthy and the light inside you, and he comes back to money. And it's like, you lost me a little bit there, bud, right? Like, who's blind? I'm not too sure exactly what's happening. My vision's going. Is that saying something's bad? You know, whatever it is. Jesus is not talking about your eyesight. The phrase, an unhealthy or a healthy eye, was an ancient way of talking about somebody's posture towards gratitude. So if I were to say your eyes are healthy, it's to say that your heart is full of, of generosity. If I were to say your eyes are unhealthy, it would to say that you're filled with greed or like the scarcity mindsets. And so these teachings are not disconnected, but they're actually deeply intertwined. 
And so to tell someone healthy eyes is to say that they have a generous heart. To say unhealthy eyes is that they have a heart filled with greed or stinginess. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. There's two ways to view the world. There's through the lens of generosity or through the lens of scarcity. Jesus says that if your heart is clouded with stinginess, that darkness spreads to all areas of your life. According to Jesus, these two mindsets dictate how we live in the world, the mindset of scarcity and the mindset of abundance. So let's talk about scarcity. Many of us have grown up with a scarcity mindset, which is this. There is not enough for everyone, so I'm going to take care of me and my own, even if it comes at the cost of somebody else. That's the lie that we believe. There is not enough. Stephen Covey says this, most people are deeply scripted in what I call the scarcity mentality. They see life as only having so much, as though there were only one pie out there, and that if someone were to get a big piece of pie, it would mean less for everybody else. The scarcity mentality is the zero-sum paradigm of life. We think that there's only a limited amount of things out there, so if someone takes a big chunk, that leaves less for us. And so that leads us to be constantly consuming comparing and complaining first consuming most of us spend our resources on things we don't need right as western americans we spend a whole lot of money as just consumers just buy 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 right if we're to be fully honest who's comfortable sharing their amazon purchases as of late right? It's like a little fan to do this, a little glow in the dark. It's like, what are we buying? It's like little knickknacks all over the place, right? And everything is two-day delivery, baby, right? So if I want it, I get it real soon. And even some things, because of the Amazon warehouse here, are like same day or next day, right? And so those of you who are, are, are faithful Amazon shoppers are thanking God for that, right? But it's like we, we constantly consume, consume, consume. It's more, it's next. Like we have a closet full of clothes, but there we are online shopping for more, right? We have, we have everything that we need, but we're constantly looking for more. And look, this isn't a condemnation on, like, you getting new threads, but this is a way of seeking, thinking, how do I think about my stuff, and what is its influence on me? We have been trained to be people who just continually consume. Buy the next thing, the upgraded version, the new, the nicer, whatever it is, instead of learning a posture of contentment, of being satisfied with where we are. The next is that of comparing right? Being in the world that we live in, the scarcity mindset is you're always looking at what everybody else has. They got a nicer this, or they got a bigger that, or whatever it is. And so we're constantly looking at what everybody else has, not what we've been given to steward. And that constant comparing leads us to a place of complaining. Oh, this is what I have. It's not nearly as nice as so-and-so. And this breeds within us just this discontentment that kind of rots the soul a grumbling spirit within us. C.S. Lewis has this incredible line. He says, pride gets no pleasure in having something, only out, of, only, out of, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If someone else is, became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. You hear this all the time. The scarcity mentality is prevalent everywhere. 
but it's not new. It's there from the very beginning. The lie that Adam and Eve believed was this, God hasn't given you enough, so take for yourself. That's the, that's the lie of the serpent. He says, God is holding out on you. Don't you want more? Take it. And they do. And this is embedded into us as human beings is to believe that same old lie. And so this scarcity mentality is a cycle. It continues to, to produce brokenness and brokenness. So first, what's really behind scarcity is fear. Fear that there's not enough, so I must accumulate for myself. It begins with fear. And then it moves to overconsumption. It means that if there's only 50 out there, I got to get as much as I can for me and my own, right? So it hoards and it brings and it overconsumes and brings to itself. And then that leads to greed. We want a stockpile. We want a bigger thing. We want more things. And so we keep piling up. And then that ultimately leads to injustice because those who don't, don't have go without because you have more than enough. And that perpetuates. And that injustice leads to more fear. And so people are growing up without, so they think that whenever they get, they got to take as much as they can, and on and on and on it goes. This makes our eyes unhealthy, seeing the world this way. And so all I want to ask is this. What is the fruit of this way of thinking? It's often insecurity, anxiety, and discontentment. And I just have one question for you. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of living that way? Aren't you tired of always having to accumulate and get and stuff and not just be content with what you have? Many of us in the modern West are exhausted because we're trapped in the scarcity cycle. We're stuck in there. Always feel like we're competing and consuming and comparing. Jesus goes on to say, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there is also, there your heart will be also. This is not the way that Jesus sees the world. It is not a world of lack, according to Jesus, but rather abundance. Jesus goes on to tell, uh, Jesus goes on to paint the picture of creation as he sees it. Matthew chapter 6 is that very famous uh, lines where he's talking about, look at the birds, look at the flowers, like they are living in abundance and they are not prone to worry. This is all a part of Jesus' teaching on money and our resources. And so Jesus goes on to appeal to the creation as saying that it was, it was created with abundance, that Adam and Eve were given the keys of the world and it was filled with abundance. The, the, the abundance mentality is this, there is more than enough to go around, therefore I can be generous. And hear me in this, we are never more like Jesus than when we give. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 8 9, Paul says this, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The word grace there is actually the word charis, which literally means gift. And so according to the biblical author, authors, grace is a gift. And he says that, for you know the gift of our Lord Jesus is that what? He was rich, he became poor on your behalf. Think of Philippians 2, that he sacrificed all of what it meant to be God, to become a human, to go into the incarnation, to live and to die for us. Jesus giving up his life. This is our model. This is whom we claim to follow. Tim Mackey says this, being a follower of Jesus involves a lot of things. But one of them is trusting that in the life of Jesus, I have been given the ultimate gift. 
It includes that my own failures and sins have been accounted for in Jesus' death on my behalf. And that death that I've introduced into the world through my selfishness and hoarding and whatever sin that that's, that's dealt with on the cross. But equally important to the story and to the gift is the resurrection, the dawn of new creation, the birth of the new creation, where there is enough for me and everybody. We must begin to see our lives as gifts in and of themselves. And hear me in this. The only natural response to a generous God is a life marked by generosity. Again, Tim Mackey. Material generosity is the only reasonable response to the gift that has been given to us in the life of Jesus. If you aren't materially sharing with others, it shows there's a deep disconnect in how you think about the Christian faith. Being loved by a generous God leads us to response as well as generosity. And so if the, healthy view, if the unhealthy view is a mindset of scarcity, the healthy view is the mindset of abundance. And so first, it begins in a posture of peace. At my grandma's house this last uh, Thanksgiving, I didn't worry if there was going to be enough food, right? There was a massive spread. And so I wasn't kicking family members over to get to the food, right, to get my own first. There was more than enough, right? And so it begins in this posture of peace. No one's like, oh, who's got the last donut or whatever it is, you know what I mean? There was, there was more than enough to go around, so it creates a posture of peace. And this is how Jesus is inviting us to see the world, is that if there's more than going around, there's no fighting and clawing and scratching. There's a posture of peace. And when there's a posture of peace, it leads to a posture of gratitude. When there's more than enough to go around, then I'm more than thankful for what I have. I'm not comparing and looking to others because I'm content with what I've been given. And when we are in this posture of gratitude, it leads us to generosity. When we realize that there's more than enough and we're super thankful for what we have, we have no problem sharing in that with others. And that ultimately leads to a place of abundance where those who don't have get to have because of us being generous. And the world works the way that Jesus intends for it to work. Now, to the skeptics in the room who are like, but what about, but what about, but what about, I hear you in that. But as followers of Jesus, we're not to live according to the systems of the world today. We're supposed to live according to the ethic of the kingdom. And the way that we change the systems of the world is by living in the ethic of the kingdom. That followers of Jesus in these communities are supposed to be counter-cultural. That sure, the world may operate like that all the rest of the time, but here, amongst these people, in this place, we live according to the kingdom ethic, and we take care of one another. And so this leads us to be constantly giving, sharing, and loving, and the fruit of that is peace, gratitude, and joy. And this is also not anything new. Generosity is the heritage of our faith. Generosity is the heritage of our faith. Jesus says this, verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The early church was marked by generosity. They were the poor, the outcast, but the most generous, and it was confounding to the Roman Empire. Uh, a man by the name of Aristides, I hope I'm saying his name right, sorry bro if it's not, but Aristides was given the task of reporting on the Christian church and writing back to the king, to the emperor. This is his line. He says this, they love one another, and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger 
they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among any among them, uh, if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. O king, is there is there manner of life and verily this a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. An outsider looking in on the church was like, what is going on? These people were remarkably generous. Tim Keller said this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. Followers of Jesus subverted the Roman Empire through generosity. And that's what compelled the people. This kind of love that's tangible. That's not just sweet pleasantries, but these people would actually give up of their lives to provide for others. And this leads us to the community of the Moravians. They've been our inspiration for this series. Think about how this community started in Hernhut. It was one guy, well-off, wealthy guy, who saw this community in need of refugees and gave up his estate, his future, to provide housing and a place for this refugee community. He gave up his future so they could have a home, that they could build and build a community off of it and all that stuff. It's born out of his generosity, and that bled something in the community. I told you guys that this community sent out, it was a community of less than, of around 300 people at any given time, and they sent over 200 missionaries to 10 countries in just 28 years. How do you think they funded that? There was not checks falling from the sky. This community came together and sacrificed to send these people out and to support them and to continually do so. This, tr this community funded for itself and for its missions and all that stuff as a poor refugee community. This is what's possible when the people of God come together and see their, their things as merely rentals to store for the kingdom of God, not possessions to cling on to. What Jesus is getting to is this. How we spend our money reveals our hearts. Keller has this great line where he says, money flows effortly to that which, it's, which is its God. What we love, we spend our money on. It's just true. What is the way that you use your resources say that you love? Just ask yourself that question. Jesus calls us to spend extravagantly, extravagantly on the things of the kingdom. Notice his line. We, we read this teaching of Jesus and think it's just super negative. But his, you know what his positive thing in this is? Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. He's saying invest, cash the chips in on things of the kingdom. He says that's where you store up for yourself, is in the kingdom that's coming. To sow into the things that Jesus is on about in the world. And when we give, we resist the way of the world. When you embody generosity, you're saying, the, the world's vision of finances does not have a hold on me. I'm willing to give freely. Kent Hughes says this, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. When you give, you're saying money's not my God. 
When you're generous, you're saying, this does not control me. You're embodying that out. And so this leads us to now us here today. What does all of this mean? First, I want to invite you to imagine what could be possible if our community truly became a community of generosity. What could be possible? What could we do? How could we serve? How could we bless? How could we help? How could we build a tabernacle of God's presence here in our city? What is possible if our community began to embody this? I think about that line that we say in our liturgy, until there is no needy person among us. What if that was the reputation of our community that nobody went without here because of the way that we lead with generosity? This is just the question I want to ask you. What's possible if we were to all live in the same manner? Anytime there's a great move of God, what always precedes it is a, a move of prayer. But what happens in the middle is a move of generosity. God begins to stir his people up to give towards that which he is doing, to fund that which he is doing. We see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in the early church. Uh, think about it. The church was exploding and growing to a place so that people came and started to sell their plots of land just to fund the ministry to get the word out, to keep moving forward. It's marked all over the scriptures. This is what the believers did to, 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 to fund what God is doing. So what's possible with us? Secondarily, I just want to ask you to consider your own life. In your current situation, how can you be somebody who is generous? How can you be somebody who's marked by generosity? What I always hear people say is that, you know, it's when I get to that next place. Then I'll be generous. Then I'll be generous. But what I found that's always true is that posture begins where you are right now, not where you want to be someday. And so it's learning how to live now so that you can be generous now so that you will be generous later. Because this is right now where the seeds begin to be planted and where it begins to, the, the, the delusion of riches begin to entangle your heart. You keep saying one day, one day, one day, and it never comes. So it's how can you be generous right now? I realize that there may be those in some of our community right now who that sounds implausible. It sounds like there's absolutely no way I can do anything, and I hear you in that. I really do. All I want to ask you to do is to consider your own life. Maybe, maybe it looks like this. Maybe what all you can afford this month is $5 to be generous towards someone or something. And it means you not getting that Starbucks, right? That's what you're giving up to do this thing. You know what I'm saying? Then start there. If that is the best that you can do, if it's used to going to your couch and scrounging up change, and that's the best you could do to be generous, start there because it begins to dethrone money off your heart. Just start where you absolutely can. Consider your own life. Next is, as a community, we have this, this really fun time where we stop in between worship and the teaching to do something called our giving liturgy. And at first, it was pretty quiet. I'm not going to lie. When we started doing the giving liturgy, it was just the person reading the thing, and it got pretty quiet. And now, for the most part, our body responds. And you might ask, why do we do that? The purpose in doing that is not to, like, conjure something up. It's to train our minds and our hearts and our bodies and declare over our lives what is true. And so that liturgy is filled with the teachings of Jesus about how we are to view our finances, how we're to steward them. And slowly but surely, as you've been saying that, week in and week out, it's been changing you. It's been reminding you of the story that is actually true. That the scarcity mindset is not the way that we have been called to live, but we've been called to walk in 
a, a posture of abundance. And lastly, is an invitation to participate with us. Um, at the end of every year, we do a special like Christmas offering, and this is just to fund the ministry and the dreams that we have for us. And in this series, Ordinary Radicals, we've talked about the plans that we want to do, the things that we want to do in terms of prayer and building on a prayer room and building, building a place of prayer for our community. We've talked about what we want to do in terms of mission and continue to help, serve, and bless this community. We've talked about formation and the way that we want to help people disciple under Jesus. And all of this is possible through us becoming a people marked by generosity. And so here's just a simple invitation. If you're in on this, I just want to invite you to pray about what God might stir in your heart to give to that. If it's nothing, then we bless you. If it's absolutely not, we bless you. And we're just so happy you're here. But here's what I believe. I believe even here now, God is stirring people who want to partner with this vision financially. And he's wanting to release them to dethrone money off their heart and to give and invest into the kingdom. And so as your pastor, I want to invite you to do that, invite you to partner with us in that way. And so all I'm asking is this, just pray. If you're married, you and your spouse come together and you pray and you ask the Lord, what might we give to this? And again, if he says nothing, great. Then move on, you know. But I have a sense that God's going to be stirring specific people in our community to give towards this. And this is above and beyond a normal, regular gift. This is something special to, to, de to, to give towards these initiatives that we're talking about. And so that's all I'm going to do is just invite you to that. No hype, no special thing, no cool video montage in the back, just that. Just ask the Holy Spirit and see what he might have for you. Now, um, we've been praying for you guys. And uh, we want to enter into a time of response now. And this has nothing to do with the message um, but this has everything to do with what the Spirit's doing in the room right now. So I would just invite you just to please, uh, if you're able, just join me in standing. This is a new rhythm for us as a church in that we've just been asking the Holy Spirit before we get here, like, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? What are you saying? What do you long to do? And week in and week out, he's been faithful to speak to his people. And so we had a few words today that I wanted to share with you. And if they resonate with you, I want to invite you to respond. Um, the first word um, was about someone who's coming here guarded. You have your walls up. And it's with other people, but primarily it's with God. And maybe this is the way that you've learned to live in the world is guarded. Keeping everybody at arm's distance but it's robbing you and the joy the Father longs to give you. And so the invitation of the Spirit this morning is let your walls down. I want to meet with you. I want to speak to you. I want to bless you. One of the other words that we got was that somebody feels like they're trapped in Egypt, that they feel themselves in bondage, and that the Spirit is inviting you this morning to an exodus, to come be set free. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like you've been trapped, you've been stuck. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a circumstance that you feel entangled and trapped. The Spirit invites you to come and to set you free. We also got a picture of somebody holding onto a rope super tight, and it's fatiguing their hand, and it's actually callousing their hand, and it's making it hard. 
And the invitation of the Spirit this morning is you've been holding on for so long, it's time to release. It's time to let that go. So there's maybe there's something in your life that you resonate with that word picture, that you've been grasping on, white-knuckling, holding on so tight, and the Spirit's inviting you to release that into, into his care. And the last word that we had was that some of you have come in this morning frustrated, like you've been hitting a wall. And you keep wondering, why isn't this working? And the invitation of the Spirit is, you've been, the way you've been doing it isn't working. It's time to do it my way, the way of Jesus. And that's the invitation for the, from the Spirit this morning. And so if any of those, at any level, resonate with you, we want to invite you to respond, and here's how you do so. All we'd ask is that you just come to the, floor, come to the front so we know who to pray for, and just put your hands out like this, as just saying, I want to receive from God today. And one of our leaders is going to come up next to you, put their hand on your shoulder, and begin to bless what God is doing. They're not going to interview you. They're not going to ask for your phone number and email. They just want to bless you and bless the work that God is doing. And I realize this involves an element of risk. And I realize this may be slightly awkward. But we are comfortable with awkward if it means you get to encounter Jesus today. You get to respond to the Spirit. And so we're just going to create that space now. As Jake worships, I just want to invite, if any of those resonated with you, would you respond? And it would be our joy and honor to bless what God is doing in you.